From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, the terrorists who hate our freedom won by scaring us into a bunker. That's largely because of what happened in Paris. You know what happened. At least you know by now. But last Friday, as it unfolded on mainstream and social media, we were confronted with a tangle of truth and hysterics, expertise and rumor, with or without malice aforethought. Actually, we were in the studio when we first learned about Paris. Our phones buzzed in unison, Twitter notifications that kept on buzzing as we were putting the final touches on last week's show. Turns out people were retweeting the breaking news consumer's handbook we wrote two years ago after a mass shooting. It offers guidance on how to evaluate initial reports after such a crime. The sources, the journalistic jargon, general words to the wise. Point number four, there is almost never a second shooter. But acts of terrorism, though similar in many respects, do not follow the same arc of coverage as the rampages of deranged shooters in schools and shopping malls. For one thing, there often is a second shooter. In other words, there are reporting errors peculiar to terrorist attacks that, tragically, you ought to know. So we begin this show with yet another one of our breaking news consumer handbooks, the Terrorism Edition. And we'll begin with the frequent use of a misleading word. In the days following an attack like this, there is an urgent need to find the culprit, not just the group behind it, but the actual individual. We seem to crave a specific human target for our anger and fear, but we don't want it to be just anybody. As Politico's Jack Schaefer wrote this week, we want it to be a mastermind. Breaking news this morning in France. Heavy gunfire and explosions in an early morning raid targeting the mastermind behind the Paris attacks. Authorities say the alleged mastermind is a high-profile ISIS member. Abdelhamid Abaoud, who we have been told, at least since Monday, is the mastermind, the brain, the actual Belgian who went to Syria more than a year ago. They had to find some evocative word that would rank the villainy of the organizer up there with Professor Moriarty or Hannibal Lecter or Ernst Blofeld from 007 movies. One of the reasons I think it's important for us to abandon the word mastermind is that there's nothing really ingenious about the mechanics of what they're doing. It's about as sophisticated as ordering a pizza. The operation is essentially gun running by French nationals, setting their watches, making sure their suicide vests are properly fitted, and executing a plan according to a stopwatch. They're using very rudimentary tools of murder. You were talking about the use of the mastermind narrative and how it treats terrorism in pop culture. And you mentioned 24, in which the forces of good predictably vanquish the forces of evil in each series finale. When you think about a show like 24, if all the terrorists were really stupid, always blowing themselves up and always missing their buses, no one would be compelled to watch such a television show. For the drama to work, the villain must be absolutely diabolical. And we see that again and again in the way that Hollywood and book publishing portrays villains. They know everything. They anticipate every countermeasure that the hero is going to take. But in real life, they're not these colossuses. They're just working-class guys whose job is to kill themselves while killing others. 
Well, what happens in real-life politics when we overestimate the genius of these guys? Well, I think we strike out blindly, wildly. In the case of the 9-11 slaughter, we ended up invading Iraq and shouldn't have. But we wisely invaded Afghanistan, which was the territorial source of the planning and the logistics of the operation. Terror causes us to lose our senses. That's what the enemy is hoping. And I don't want to be one of those guys who says, oh, right now we're doing exactly what ISIS wants us to do. We're overreacting. But I guess I am going to be that guy. We've got to be careful to maintain our rationality in the face of what is an irrational horror that's taken place. One last question, Jack. You wrote, when we turn the bad guy into a mastermind, we're offering ourselves an oddly false comfort, a way to make sense of a world that is neither as full of evil geniuses as the TV version would have us believe, nor as comforting. Yeah. You know, the only way that I can wrap my mind around this is to think of it as a dumb war, a dumb bloody war that the terrorists seem to be engaging in. So there's no reason for us to glorify it or dress it up or pin sequins on it as the product of brilliance. It also puts into perspective exactly who we're fighting, somebody who's not very bright, but absolutely tenacious and ruthless, not only in terms of who they kill, but how they die themselves. Jack, thank you very much. Thank you. Jack Schaefer is Politico's senior media writer. Mastermind is one word to watch out for. Unprecedented is another. TV experts pose another hazard. So does passion and politics. J.M. Berger is co-author of ISIS, The State of Terror. J.M., welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. Whenever a fresh attack occurs... We seem to forget everything that has ever happened before in all of human history. Yeah, well, we remember 9-11 in Pearl Harbor. So when the Paris attacks were taking place, a lot of people were saying this is the worst terrorist attack in the West since 9-11. But in 2004, the Madrid subway attacks were more deadly, although arguably less disruptive. Remember that there's very little that happens in the realm of terrorism that's genuinely new. Even the 9-11 tax had precursors. There were things in the past that sort of pointed to that. So you should always take a grain of salt when you hear somebody say that something is new and unprecedented. So one thing that has frustrated me in a lot of this coverage is that there's been a great deal of talk about ISIS having new capabilities. In the case of the Paris attacks, there was definitely prior evidence to suggest that this was well within ISIS's reach. Terrorism is just a magnificent opportunity for a certain kind of opportunistic politics. Is there anything we can do to protect ourselves? Well, we can certainly try and keep some sense of perspective first. Terrorist attacks generally are not an existential threat. They are serious. We should treat them seriously and, and respond to them. But, you know, there's a, I think Lindsey Graham said last week that ISIS is coming here to kill us all. And they're not going to be able to do that. Secondly, we either hugely overestimate them or hugely underestimate them. They're either defeating us or they're no harm. So we say, oh, they're contained or, oh, we don't think they have the capability to strike in the West, which many people said prior to this attack. And both things were kind of demonstrably untrue. <laughs> so, you know, when we overestimate them, we're doing them a favor because we're making them look bigger than they are. And when we underestimate them, we're doing them a favor because when they do something, 
that we didn't expect, everybody freaks out. Wall-to-wall coverage following a terror attack means that cable news channels have to fill a lot of time with a lot of talking heads. Presented as somehow expert, are they always experts? Well, you know, there are people who are certainly more qualified to talk about this than others. You know, I was struck while watching CNN's coverage of Paris that they were running a uh, promo for a special by Fareed Zakaria that was going to explain where the Islamic State came from. And and the most prominent person featured in that promo was Tom Friedman, who is not the first person I would go to for that explanation. He's not a terrorism expert. He's more of a generalist. and, And we need generalists in our public discourse, but there are also people who can sort of drill down into this. So it's a challenge cable channels have in filling those chairs, but at the same time, I hear some of the stuff they say and I just shake my head. And from the where are they now file, we give you this. Uh, Former Vice President Dan Quayle on what he would do to address this growing ISIS threat. The Chiron should have said, who cares what Dan Quayle thinks we should do? Dan Quayle? When you're looking for somebody to fill that seat, as the coverage stretches on and on, then you start looking further afield. So you look for people with stronger, possibly entertaining political opinions. If you've ever worked for the CIA, then you're qualified to comment on ISIS. It doesn't matter if you spent 20 years in Guatemala, they'll call you up. How do we separate the wheat from the chaff? I think you look for people who are sober and who have access to facts. Do you mean sober as in non-histrionic or sober as in not actually drunk? (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. The more emotional the argument, the more questions you should have about it. And we saw this with al-Qaeda to some extent, too. But I think ISIS even more really has captured the theater of terrorism like no other group has. Look for a coherent version of the facts. Check other sources. And and one thing that was pretty striking in the hours and days after Paris was really just the unbelievably conflicting statements of fact. You know, one day we were saying that ISIS, you know, has never shown the capability to do this before. And the next day it's like we should have known this from the beginning. Sometimes the same person saying both things. J.M., thank you very much. Thank you. J.M. Berger is co-author of ISIS, The State of Terror. We'll be hearing from him again later on in the show. And now the Twitter part. Obviously, our instant link to the world can deepen both our insight and our ignorance. Joanne Stocker is a managing editor for GrassWire, a site that uses crowdsourcing to fact-check breaking news. She saw a heap of false messages and faked photos shared during last week's attack. Some were well-meant, others not. For instance, one viral picture claimed to show one of the attackers. Except it wasn't a suicide bomber. It was just a man, as it happens a Sikh, who was photoshopped to look like one. And he was holding an iPad and taking a selfie in his bathroom. And they photoshopped that into a Quran. And they photoshopped a suicide vest on him. And, you know, they were spreading that around as this is one of the Paris attackers. They even photoshopped his eyebrows so that he looked angry. There was a sex toy photoshopped on the bathtub behind him, like really badly done. (laughs) But if you're in the heat of the moment and you see this come across and it's, oh, my God, you know, this guy's one of the attackers, people don't actually stop and look at it with that critical eye for the most part. They just reflexively hit retweet. 
And of course, social media is subject to the same problem that all media are subject to, which is that once a lie is out there, it's almost impossible to take it back. Right. Nobody reads retractions. So we took his actual photo from August. The Sikh? Yes, which is just a nice selfie, and juxtaposed it with the bad one with a giant red X over it. And we actually tweeted those together so that you were seeing both of them at once. It's almost like that old matching game, you know, circle what's different in the two photos. And then it was like, oh, well, yeah, of course this is fake. You just hit on something fascinating. It was widely shared, your correction, and maybe it's because you gamified it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what we're trying to do is make it as compelling as the fake photos, you know, because everybody remembers Hurricane Sandy. There were pictures of sharks swimming in the streets of New Jersey, <laughs> which is just ridiculous, right? But like that picture looks cool. So people want to share that. And I think that if you can take the truth and actually present it in the same way, then you can actually inform people in a way that they're going to want to pass it on. So if you were to isolate one particular breaking news consumer's handbook in the wake of a terrorist attack for Twitter users, what would it be? My favorite thing in the breaking news consumer's handbook is the the first one. In the immediate aftermath, news outlets will get it wrong. And if you want to take that into Twitter and say, you know, in the immediate aftermath, the reports are going to be messy and you have to give them time. You know, you, you have to give the authorities and the witnesses and the media in general time because governments are going to get it wrong and the media is going to get it wrong and witnesses are going to get it wrong. And it doesn't mean that there's a conspiracy. It just means that this is breaking news. What do you anticipate in terms of falsity? in the reporting that we'll be seeing further out from the event. Scapegoating. You know, they're already talking about the refugee issue. There was a passport that, you know, miraculously survived one of the suicide attacks that was found. And they said that that passport had come through Greece. And so this is a Syrian refugee. We need to be careful because, you know, somebody came here as a refugee and committed this act. And then it turned out I think it was two days later, that they arrested somebody in Serbia who's had the same passport. The picture was different, but all of the other data was the same. So the passport was faked. It's almost certain. I think that we have a human need for answers. We need to know who did this. And sometimes saying it's Dash or it's ISIS isn't enough. We need that face. This person did it, and they are from Belgium. This person did it, and they're from Syria. What's so dangerous about it is once you've got that person's face in your head or their name, it's so hard to replace that with the accurate information. And then we get nervous. Well, you told me that it was this guy, and now you're telling me that it's this other guy. We start to trust government a little bit less, and we start to trust the media a little bit less. And I think that that makes us feel that we're more insecure than we really are. Joanne, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you. Joanne Stocker is the managing editor for GrassWire. Those are the components of the Breaking News Consumers Handbook Terrorism Edition. You can find a link to a handy one-page version at onthemedia.org. For the rest of the show, we considered the words, the memes, and the misdirection that muddied the media and our perspectives on Islam and the Arab world. The Paris articles were really intimate. 
We knew about the places where it happened. We knew that there was a rock band playing. There was no mention in Beirut of the school, the hospital, the crowded marketplace that was near this explosion. This is On the Media.